Welcome to the third episode of a new podcast, First They Came for the Immigrants. In this episode, Virginia Raymond will be talking with Dr. Yael Shacker, senior U.S. advocate with Refugees International. The U.S. has a long history of involvement and intervention in Central America. Virginia and Dr. Shacker discuss a new chapter in that history, detailed in a report Dr. Shacker recently co-authored entitled, Deportation with a Layover, Failure of Protection under the U.S.-Guatemala Asylum Cooperative Agreement. Good evening, Dr. Shacker. Uh, Yael Shacker. It's very glad, I'm very glad to be talking with you tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if you could start by telling us, um, you are a historian and you also work um, in an activist role of sorts um, for Refugees International. And I wonder if you could tell us about what Refugees International is and does. Sure. Refugees International is an independent, non-governmental organization in Washington, D.C., based in Washington, D.C. Its main focus is on displacement, forced displacement, um, and that means not only refugees, in other words, people who cross a border, an international border, but also internally displaced people. Um, And in general, um, the focus has been on humanitarian aid all around the world. And we have um, sort of advocates, which is what I am, that cover different parts of the world, regional focuses. So we have someone who covers Francophone Africa. We have someone who covers Latin America. We have someone who covers um, the Middle East, um, Europe and North Africa. So in other words, a regional focus and I cover the United States. Um, We also have some thematic based um, advocates who cover, in other words, we have a climate migration focused advocate and we have a gender um, based advocate who focuses on women and girls mostly. So, but again, the main focus is on protection, um, protection needs of the forcibly displaced. And then one important other thing I would mention is that we do not, as an organization, accept any money from the U.S. government or the international organizations like the U.N., which makes us able to um, criticize them um, and um, you know work with them. Sometimes speak for them if they can't speak up because they're beholden to funders. So it's a kind of interesting relationship in that way. Um, and again, we we aren't a direct service provider. That's I think something that people sometimes think we are a resettlement agency. In other words, uh, focusing on when refugees come to the United States from overseas, there are resettlement agencies, several of them, nine big ones, um, that help resettle refugees in the United States. That's not something that we do. Although we do t- we do. T- Um, write a lot about uh, refugee resettlement and advocate for more refugee resettlement. But refugee resettlement is just one small piece of the big displacement picture worldwide. Um, And mostly we're a policy organization. Um, The advocates like me go out and travel, at least we did before the COVID-19 crisis. We travel to different places all over the world and do research and um, collect information um, about displacement crises going on. Then we bring those stories and issues back to Washington to try to inform policy making. So I do a lot of meetings with the Hill, um, uh, Congress people, um, and if I'm lucky, uh, members of the administration, although that's been tricky, um, about um, how to deal better with forced displacement. Wonderful. Um, and how long has the organization been around? 
1979, it was founded, um, it was sort of a, founded during the Vietnam um, War refugee crisis. Um, and it was really, in, in some ways, born with the uh, modern um, refugee and asylum systems in the United States uh, around the time of the passage of the Refugee Act of 1980, which really helped establish the resettlement program. But interestingly, um, for the vast majority of its history, in fact, until I started, um, there was not so much a focus on the United States. That tells you a little bit of something about the Cold War origins of the organization. In other words, there was this idea that the United States was morally exceptional in many ways. Um, and the goal of the organization was to say, the United States resettles a lot of people, um, has been doing so much in terms of humanitarian aid and resettlement, um, was a global leader in resettlement of refugees and providing aid to the UN for refugees and would use its moral authority to push other countries to do more. Um, and so a lot of the reports that Refugees International has done and their focus has shifted over the years in many ways. Now we cover much more um, issues in Africa than we did earlier. We cover much more things in Latin America than we did before um, and on other topics uh, as well. But for a long time, we had a statelessness program, which we don't have as much focused on anymore. And now we focus on internally displaced people more. So our, our topics have shifted. But I do think the focus on the United States is relatively new on um, the focus for the most part has been on using US moral authority to push other governments to do more to influence you, you know, use, get Americans, America, America to, to, to push other countries to do better. And I think that's shifted a little bit now, um, as I have, I came on to Refugees International. So many, many moves, starting with the one that felt most shocking and most out of the blue to many of us, the, um, the travel bans, which we can shorthand call the Muslim travel ban, even though it was, you know, countries with majority Muslims. But then over the last several years, there have been all these measures to shut down asylum. And so I really um, asked you on tonight specifically to talk about the report that you did with your colleagues from both Refugees International and Human Rights Watch about the asylum or so-called asylum cooperative agreements. And I am wondering why out of all of the things that are going on, why, and I know you've been working on a lot because I've seen you in Texas and we've gotten to work together on things, but, um, this report is something extraordinary, I think, and very strong. And I'm wondering why both Refugees International and Human Rights Watch decided to focus in, in general, on asylum cooperative agreements or so-called asylum cooperative agreements, and then specifically on the one between the United States and Guatemala. Okay, um, so as you said, you know, when I started at Refugees International and, and saw you, uh, Virginia, um, my focus was on a couple of other things. Detention, for example, the detention of asylum seekers specifically, which had also ramped up under Trump and nobody was sort of let out of parole, out, out on parole, and that was a big deal. Um, and then the Remain in Mexico program, which I covered for almost a year, almost all of 2019. Um, but then I shifted gears towards, as you said, these asylum cooperative agreements. And I just want to say, you know, my organization having this international focus and having a lot of allies in the State Department, because when I said Eric Schwartz worked for the Obama and Clinton administrations, he worked in the Obama administration in the part of the State Department that covers refugees. And, um, and, and one of the things about safe third country agreements or 
with these asylum cooperative agreements, and I'll distinguish between them in a minute, is that they're usually negotiated bilaterally through the State Department because what they are are um, at least in fact, when um, Eric Schwartz worked for the Clinton administration in the 90s, that was when Canada approached the United States about signing a safe third country agreement with Canada and the United States. It was actually Canada who initiated it because Canada felt that many, many people were coming to the Canadian border and asking for from the United States, from the United States side, you know, nor northern New York um, or Michigan, and they were coming and they were saying, we'd like to request asylum in the United States. And Canada was saying, you know, the U.S. has a relatively robust asylum system. In fact, it developed a pretty good asylum officers corps in the early 1990s and things were going kind of going in the right direction at that time. Why don't, since we both have, Canada and the United States both have good protection systems in place for asylum seekers. Why don't we say that somebody who goes, travels through the United States and asks for asylum at the Canadian border, unless they have a family member already in Canada seeking asylum or some attachment to Canada, it makes a lot of sense for them to seek asylum through the U.S. system. So we'll send it there. Uh, the U.S. was sort of on the fence about this because it doesn't get a lot of, it doesn't get a lot of asylum seekers coming through Canada. So this was really Canada's initiative. And for a while, it just sat and festered and it didn't really go anywhere. And eventually, uh, in the early 2000s, after 9-11, when this was sort of seen in more security terms, um, the U.S. and Canada signed a safe third country agreement. Um, and the idea of state third country agreements, and again, it was negotiated through the State Department and the United Nations High Commission for Refugees was actually involved as a monitor to make sure that this didn't become a situation where asylum seekers um, were sent back from Canada to the United States and then, I don't know, rapidly deported back to their home countries, for example, where there was actually a, a way for asylum seekers to seek have a real process to seek asylum in either of the two countries, full and fair procedures. It was written into the into the immigration law that if you sign a safe third country agreement, those countries have to have full and fair asylum procedures. They in fact have to be safe. In other words, they have to be places where um, asylum seekers would not be threatened. Um, and the UN monitored the way this agreement worked out. And th that's been sort of an agreement um, the United States has had with Canada since 2004, it's been going on. Recently, the Canadian court said it was not okay. And the reason they said that is because, mostly because of the United States detention conditions. Um, and um, yes, Virginia. I need to just interrupt you and ask you to say what you mean by Canada's Supreme Court saying it's not okay. Right. So the 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 Canadian um, the, re, the Canadian High Court recently decided that um, the agreement between the United States and Canada, the Safe Third Country Agreement, um, is a violation of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's basically their Bill of Rights uh, in Canada. Um, and the reason it is is because when Canada sends, if someone seeks asylum at the Canadian border having traveled to the United States and Canada sends that person back to the United States. What the court found was, um, and the plaintiffs in litigation about this were um, Assyrians, some Salvadorians, and it, I, I believe someone from Ethiopia. Um, and one of those plaintiffs actually ended up in solitary confinement on the US side when Canada sent them back. And 
solitary confinement for an asylum seeker is a violation of Canadians' charter, Canada's charter. So it basically said, you know, this is a violation of, the, of human rights um, uh, and, and Canadian law. Uh, and unfortunately, the government of Canada is appealing and this is not over. And so it hasn't gone into the agreement has not been canceled yet. But actually, it's a testimony to how far and we can talk about this later. It's a testimony to how how far and how poor the United States asylum system is right now that Canada is basically saying the United States is not a safe country. We cannot have, we cannot send asylum seekers back to the United States because they will not treat them humanely um, and, and safely. Um, I want to say also that safe third country agreements are sort of, as I said, the UN monitored this agreement with Canada and safe third country agreements in concept, in theory, are sanctioned under international law. What I mean by that is that Europe has these. Um, so in Europe, when the asylum seeker travels to Europe, the rule basically is, is that to the European Union, you basically have to seek asylum in the first safe country you get to. You can't sort of foreign shop is the rule is the term used in Europe. You have to just basically so as soon as you get there. So in Europe, that usually means Greece or Spain, depending on where you're coming from. If you're coming from Syria via Turkey, it's usually Greece. If you're coming from North Africa, it might be Spain or Italy. Depends. Um, and the problem, of course, with these agreements um, is that Greece, Italy, Greece and Italy, especially and Spain's not so great. They don't actually have good asylum <laughs> systems. So people just they get to Greece and they're sort of stuck there um, and not really getting processed and they're not allowed to sort of proceed elsewhere in Europe. Um, and in fact, because of that, Europe signed, a, the European Union signed a deal with Turkey to basically send anybody who failed their asylum hearings back to Turkey and Europe gave Turkey all this money to sort of support asylum seekers. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up to say that um, these agreements exist internationally in other parts of the world. Australia has a bunch of them. Um, and a lot of times what they end up being, although in principle, the idea is, is that countries, safe countries with comparable asylum systems, all of which provide full and fair procedures and a way for people to apply for asylum in theory, um, want to share the obligation to protect. So we want to let everybody you know, do their part. This is sort of an international system, the goal being that all developed countries should step up and, you know, a, they, they sign the UN Convention, they should provide protection for people who are seeking it. Unfortunately, in practice, what has happened is that the vast majority of countries, even, you know, these, like I said, these European countries that are closest to the borders of Africa and the Middle East are not actually providing those full and fair procedures for people um, and um, have been sort of actually just sending people out refouling them, you know, putting them, sending them back into the water into the Mediterranean, terrible. And what it's done is let Germany and France and Great Britain off the hook uh, and not having to actually provide protection for any of these asylum seekers. I mean, Greece has to do it and Italy, the people at the border. Um, and I think it's about sort of externalizing the obligation to protect that becomes the big problem with safe third country agreements. In theory, they're not that. In theory, they're sharing a responsibility. In practice, what it's actually become are the, the richest, most powerful countries um, with the most capability of protecting people, telling other poor countries they should do it. And, and, and those countries are not actually providing the protection.
Um, thank you for that very clear description. One of the terms that you used was putting people on boats, refouling them. So the, this idea of refouling or refoulement is very important in international human rights law. And I don't know that many people outside of that field know what that term means. Uh, so one of the most important um, principles in the UN Refugee Convention that was signed after World War II um, in 1951 by many countries, although not the United States yet, um, is that um, you cannot return a person at the frontier or arriving in the country uh, to any place where they would their life or freedom would be threatened. That's the literal um, part of the of the of the convention. The non refoulement provision of the Refugee Con Convention, which is Article 33 of the Refugee Convention. Um, now, the United States acceded to that in 1967 and then incorporated that very idea into our own immigration law in 1980 in the Refugee Act that we mentioned earlier, which includes a provision that the Attorney General cannot return to a place where anyone's life or freedom would be threatened, you know, someone seeking asylum in the United States. And that is a mandatory obligation. This is not discretionary. This is not up to, you know, it's not if you qualify for asylum. If you prove that you, you know, if you prove that you would be in real danger if sent back, you cannot be sent back. And what a lot of these other countries are doing um, are um, not giving people a chance to really tell their story and ask for asylum and simply just putting them on boats and sending them away. And, you know, you know, people can drown or people can end up back in their home countries in real danger because we don't really, we've, they've never really been screened. They haven't been assessed. So uh, I'm going to make a little footnote here and then ask you to talk about what you found when you report. But my footnote is, even though the law says if your life or freedom would be threatened, the courts in the United States have mostly interpreted that. By that, I mean courts that are not really courts, the administrative agencies, the immigration courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals and circuit courts have basically not interpreted that to mean life or freedom. They've basically said it has to mean life, right? Because there are any number of people whose freedom will be severely threatened if sent back. For instance, if you are a lesbian or a gay man and you are not allowed to marry in your home country or in fact, um, having same-sex relations, consensual relations between adults is a crime, your freedom is threatened in the most intimate way and a profound way. And yet that has not been to this point, something that courts have taken up as what, um, as what the non-refoulement means is not, um, is not the kind of life or freedom uh, threat to life or freedom that the, that they're talking about, and they have not enforced that in the United States at all. Um, yeah, and in general, I mean the, that standard, the with, which in the United States is called the withholding or removal standard, technically is a very it actually has become a very high standard, and it's and it's out of sync with the you know European human rights um, standards and other interpretations of the convention of that refoulement standard that are much, much more capacious and provide much more protection for many more types of threats of harm um, than ours does. So, um, yeah. We're going to go back to that at a, probably at a different time. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you, so you and your colleagues 
decide we need to look at this so-called asylum uh, cooperative agreement. We need to, um, and maybe you can tell me, do we, in, in doing so, are we trying to decide whether Guatemala is a safe third country? Um, what did you do once you had this question in your mind? How did you go about finding out the answer to it? Right. So just a quick step back is that I really think and, you know, it was very clear that the United States wanted Mexico, first and foremost, to sign a safe third country agreement with it. Um, Remain in Mexico, the program that uh, I investigated became sort of like the consolation um, prize for the United States, sadly. Um, and it's been horrible. It's been, but it um, what the U.S. really wanted Mexico to do and try to pressure the Mexicans to do was to do basically to play the role that Turkey plays with the European Union, just keep asylum seekers coming from south of Mexico in Mexico. The United States, Mexico said no. Um, and so next, um, the Trump administration turned to Central American countries themselves, which it's an amazing thing because these are the very countries sending refugees to the United States. So Mexico would have maybe made sense, although still not a safe country for most of the Central Americans as the Remain in Mexico program um, at, you know, abundantly proves. Um, but, but I think, you know, the next step was to do what the Trump administration does typically, which is bully Guatemala into signing an agreement and also bully El Salvador and Honduras into signing agreements. So three agreements were actually made. And what I think alerted me to this problem in my organization specifically, and this was already happening in the summer of 2019, this all negotiations over these agreements started. Um, you know, this again is usually the province of the State Department. State Department was totally cut out. It was absolutely, you know, State Department, which is actually concerned about conditions in these countries and knows a little bit about what it's like there because we have embassies, you know, and um, would have to attest about the safety of any country to be, you know, to serve this role as a safe place. Um, and DHS was doing everything, which made it very clear that this agreement was not actually about a negotiation between equally safe countries. It was a migration control agreement. DHS being the Department of Homeland Security, of which ICE and the Border Patrol are part. Right. And which has been on the forefront of the as limits on asylum. Right. And so what this was, although this was framed as this sort of responsibility sharing, um, you know, with all these Central American countries, um, what it turned out to be was just a way of keeping asylum seekers away from the border or sending them away from the border, like many of the other Trump policies have been, metering, remain in Mexico, keeping people who want to apply at the border away from the border, sending them away. Um, and the reason we focus on Guatemala is because the other agreements, while they've been signed on paper, um, have not actually been implemented or were never implemented yet. So Guatemala was the test case. This is the first agreement that was rolled out. Um, and so that's where we went. Um, and I'd say, you know, be, I, my, again, I, I, I was alerted to this and I was kind of researching the, the problems of the agreement as soon as the administration published a rule in the fall of 2019, sort of legalizing all of this and saying that, you know, giving the, the Department of Homeland Security and the Attorney General saying, you know, we, we've made this deal. And it was a little bit different. The rule putting the, this in place was different than the Canadian rule in the sense that, again, the UN wasn't monitoring it. 
surprise, surprise. And neither was there exceptions for family members or anything like that. And many of the people we found that were, the way it works is that Salvadorans, and so this, it's a safe third country agreement. So it's not about sending Guatemalans back to their home country, because that would actually be straight up refoulement. So like as we talked about before, you can't just send an asylum seeker from Guatemala straight back to Guatemala. The U.S. couldn't do that. But what they could do was sign an agreement with Guatemala to send Salvadorans and Hondurans to Guatemala to seek asylum there. And what I found, so what we did, um, this struck me as crazy, mostly because Guatemala also was sending asylum seekers to the United States in huge numbers, so it was not a safe country. Many of the people fleeing El Salvador and Honduras were fleeing transnational gang violence. Many of the gangs could sort of easily track people down in Guatemala. So that was, and some of the folks you mentioned earlier, trans people, gay people, the situation in Guatemala is terrible for gay people generally and trans people. Generally. So if there were asylum seekers from Honduras and El Salvador, you wouldn't want to send them to Guatemala if they were gay or trans. So this was not a safe country for asylum seekers. It was a refugee sending country. It was not a safe place. But this is what the United States, this is where the United States decided to send Salvadorans and Hondurans. And what we, so we got, so um, I, Rachel Schmidtke, um, who's a colleague from uh, Refugees International, who, who focuses mostly on Latin America, um, and um, Ariana Sawyer, who is a researcher at Human Rights Watch, who focuses mostly on Mexico, actually, um, we all decided we were going to go down. And we actually tag team it. So Rachel and I were in, we wanted to cover as much time as we could. Uh, Rachel and I were there for about a week and a half in early February. And then Ariana was there for another week right after we left. Um, and it was clear from watching things the 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 agreement with guatemala was implemented around thanksgiving time 2019 but it was very very slow getting going the initial reports were that amazingly people were sent from the u.s border it was mostly single adults so single male usually male salvadorans and hondurans were sent from the u.s border to guatemala to seek asylum there um, and again, the Attorney General and Department of Homeland Security had signed off on some sort of a assessment that Guatemala was safe, which I actually later um, read those assessments that came out in discovery over litigation about this, and they were ridiculous, and ignored State Department data about how unsafe Guatemala is. So that is just something to put out there, that it was very clear that this was sort of not, you know, this was not done above board. Um, and um, and, you know, and also UNHCR had weighed in, the UN had weighed in and said that there weren't really full and fair procedures for people to ask for asylum in um, Guatemala. Like they didn't have a very clunky asylum system that, that there had only, there were only like one or two asylum officers. Asylum has to be approved by the vice president. Very few people, there's already a backlog. Very few people actually ask for asylum in Guatemala. There are, almost no international refugee lawyers in Guatemala at all, mostly because it's a refugee sending, not a refugee receiving country. So why would people, in other words, there was no system 
in Guatemala that was actually able to process many, many asylum seekers. And what ended up happening is that these people would come, these men would be sent back to Guatemala and they would essentially be asked by the International Organization for Migration, which is not a protection oriented organization, whether or not they wanted to return to their home country. And they said yes. And they ended up going home without ever having their protection needs screened. What got really troublesome was starting around January, it, it clearly became not just men anymore. I mean, that was troubling in its own. And the reason men were sent back was Thank because you. detention was full in the United States. So that was another reason that, so why did they pick men first? Mostly because they, they thought they would be less sympathetic to people, although, they, but also because they did, it was all a matter of enforcement. They didn't necessarily have detention beds for those people. So send them first um, to Guatemala. What a way to get rid of them out of sight, out of mind. Women and children, different story in terms of detention. They have to be released. It's a different story in the United States, at least then. And so, but what you started to see in January and February is the vast majority of the people were young women with toddlers. By the time I got to Guatemala with Rachel, it was, we went to the, so the way it works is people would get off the plane. They would come into the tarmac. These are, remember, these are Salvadorans and Hondurans. They don't know anybody in Guatemala. There's no shelter system. The women with small children, can't work while they wait there. So they're sent to a shelter. They're asked, do you want to apply for asylum? And they basically said, we can't. Um, we don't know how. We don't have a lawyer. We don't have any place to stay. How are we going to afford it? How, where are we going to stay? Uh, they didn't feel safe in Guatemala, and they didn't have the wherewithal to really apply. So many of them ended up going home or going back to the United States illegally again, or trying to go to Mexico or trying to go somewhere else. So this clearly wasn't like a responsibility sharing. You know, we were losing track of people and nobody was monitoring this. And I just want to say one other thing is that, you know, there's the danger that those people would actually be refouled. And what I mean by that is, you know, people would come to the U.S. border um, and a teenager, a 19-year-old, a uh, a woman with her child would come to the U.S. border. The way the program worked out is that they were held in Border Patrol custody for much longer than the allowed 72 hours. Um, this rolled out in the Brownsville area and also in the El Paso area. Um, they were kept in tents, basically these tents in the desert, for two weeks in, under horrible conditions, and they were never really told what was going on. So they didn't have access to an attorney. They can make like one phone call, but in Border Patrol custody, you do not have access to attorneys. So, you know, and they were basically told, they were given this screening that wasn't an asylum screening. They weren't given a chance to ask for asylum. They were basically told, asked, you know, what nationality are you? Are you seeking asylum? Yes. Okay. Um, then they were asked, they, they basically be told, you are eligible, you might be sent to Guatemala, we're not sure. They didn't really explain it. Um, and then they were asked if they raised, the, on, them, on their own, if they said, no, we're scared to go back to Guatemala, they would be asked to prove it and prove why that, that was the case. But very few people even really understood that they needed to do that. And anyway, had only you know traveled through Guatemala briefly. So that wouldn't necessarily have occurred to them because they couldn't fathom being sent to Guatemala. It didn't make any sense. They were asking for asylum in the United States, many of them having family members in the United States who they were trying to be reunited with. Uh, and they had the evidence about the, their persecution in El Salvador and 
Honduras, but that wasn't something that the Border Patrol were interested in. Some of them weren't really even told when they were getting on the planes where they were going. They got off the planes in Guatemala. Hello, you're in Guatemala. Didn't really understand where they were there. And the Guatemalan government kind of didn't explain their options very well. The options were you can stay here and pay for a very expensive visitor's permit. Uh, you can apply for asylum or you can go home. Um, and to give you an idea of just how vulnerable these people are, um, the IOM, as I said earlier, is charged with the role of if people voluntarily say they would like to return to their home country, the IOM does that for them, pays for their Interna uh, the organization, International Organization for Migration, um, which uh, is, is sort of helps manage guest worker programs and voluntary migration programs. It's not really a protection-based organization, but it is part of the UN system. Anyway, so some of these, so some people, the IOM would do interviews and say, we, you know, we'd be happy to take you home. And even the IOM, which is actually charged with this and was only who only did interviews with people who voluntarily said we would like to go home, refused to return some of the people because it was too dangerous and was worried that the, something awful would happen to them. And yet, even those people who the IOM refused to return, nobody has monitored what happened to them. We don't know where they are. So it just gives you a sense of this agreement is not about sharing protection, finding a way to share protection. This agreement is about, is one of the many tools in the toolkit of the Trump administration to send people um, to a, away from the border and keep asylum seekers out of the United States. And I mean, I think Guatemala was rolled out first in some ways because a lot of the asylum seekers at the time were coming from Honduras to the United States. So this was a way of um, dealing with that flow and basically saying, you know what, um, we're not going to be dealing with Honduras, which has major, major dangers and ma many legitimate claimants coming from there and saying, we're just going to let Guatemala deal with it. And, and the, the, the real concern that we found um, is that this just becomes essentially a deportation with a layover, which I, I can explain. I mean, people were just sent to Guatemala to eventually go back to their home countries. And that's what I mean, deportation to your home country with a stop in Guatemala, a brief stop, and never really having your protection needs assessed in any way. Yael, Dr. Shacker, <laughs> Dr. Yael Shacker. Thank you so much. Uh, I have a million more questions. Uh, we wanna keep the podcast reasonably sized. This has been so helpful and, um, and, and so I guess just to finish the thought is nothing is happening now because of COVID. Everything is shut down, including this program. Um, we're going to have to all reassess where we are, I guess, in November. Um, and right. and, yeah. and um, whenever we have COVID under control, which we don't know when that will be. That's right. So in mid-March, as soon as things went on lockdown and the shelters in Guatemala, the one shelter that exists to take in these folks who had been returned, and about a thousand people were returned between November and, and February um, to, or were sent, not, re I shouldn't say returned, were transferred to Guatemala um, um, between then at Hondurans and Salvadorans. And it, yeah, once the shelter closed down, Guatemala said, no, we will not accept this. But 
what's a little bit scary is that all of these agreements are on the books. The rule implementing them is on the books. And so at any time, as soon as, you know, COVID uh, starts up again, it could be implemented. And, you know, the idea is even in the next administration, we, we don't want to let this false idea that these agreements are actually legitimate in any way exist. I mean, um, I, I sometimes worry that even another administration might think that this is a tool that we could use to share the obligation to protect. And what I, what I want to emphasize is that that is an excuse that's not really what's going on. And so these are the really dangerous agreements. We have to make sure they don't happen. And, you know, the problem right now is that the Trump administration has a much more powerful tool it's using at the border, which is just basically to literally expel people um, be under, uh, under the grounds of public health um, and shut the border down. So it doesn't need to use this more, um, you know, complicated um, asylum agreement to, to do that, to keep asylum seekers out. But I do worry that, you know, when COVID is over or our next steps, that these could be re-implemented or new agreements could be implemented. Yeah, that's a real fear. And we really have to be diligent, no matter who wins in November, um, right. to, to not let this become the new normal. Um, Dr. Shacker, this has been fantastic. Again, the report is called Deportation with a Layover, Failure of Protection under the U.S.-Guatemala Asylum Cooperative Agreement, and it is dated May 2020. It is available online. It's free. And uh, remember Human Rights Watch or remember Refugees International, and we'll also put um, a link to it on um, the Facebook of this um, of this podcast. And um, thank you again so very much. Um, I want you to come back and talk about detention and to talk about your own investigations into history um, and some of the prehistory of asylum as we have recently thought of it. And um, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. It's an it. honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to First They Came for the Immigrants, a new podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to give us a rating and review, which helps people find the podcast. Our audio was produced by Avi Hurwitz, who also performed the music at the introduction to the podcast. Outro music by progressive social justice rock band Swerve Left. Find us on Facebook, and be sure to like us and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.